Welcome to Resolving Reality, an independent Irish media platform. This is video episode 12, and I interview Italian freelance journalist Alessandra Bocchi about Italian politics, mass migration, and censorship. Support this channel, Resolving Reality, like, comment, share, and subscribe. And for all our other profiles and platforms, visit our website, resolvingreality.com. Alessandra, great to speak to you and welcome to Resolving Reality. Thanks for having me here. No worries. I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, let's lay the foundations here, first of all, and just do an introduction for the audience. Um, I know you're a freelance journalist and you've moved around quite a bit as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about the stuff you normally cover and uh, where have you've been based so far as a, as a journalist. Yes, so I did a training program in journalism in London, and then my first job was in North Africa and Tunisia, where I worked for a year. Um, I worked on various stories there for local and Arab newspapers, regional newspapers as well. And I was covering everything from uh, women's rights issues to religious issues, um, especially with the minorities there. So I worked a lot with Christian minorities. And then um, I became interested because I was covering the migrant crisis um, when I was working on Libya. I became very interested in this topic because I saw so much disinformation um, in the media on how this topic was covered. So I decided to uh, go back to Italy, which is the country where I was born and grew up. And uh, I started working for a national newspaper here. And then I started working for American newspapers as well, because I also have family in the States. Um, That's why I know English, like I'm bilingual. Um, And I was covering uh, the uh, new populist government, because uh, I also saw that in that case, there was a lot of misinformation on how that was covered in the mainstream media. Yeah. And was there um, kind of a, so there was a a bit of an evolution in terms of your work, like you're not covering the exact same stuff now as as in the beginning? No, I'm not. I mean, I still cover North Africa and I'm still very interested in what is going on because of the proximity to Europe. And there's so much um, that is not being covered there. I mean, we hear so much about Syria and the Middle East, but we don't hear as much about North Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cover a variety of issues and I don't like to just be fixated on one. But as soon as I see that there is some misinformation or things that are not being covered or not known, I like to focus on those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And as well, because you're freelance, I mean, uh, is that, does that one of the reasons what prompted you to go freelance? Because when you're a freelance journalist, you have that freedom to say what you really want to say and you're not going to tie it to, to one organization as such. Yes, that's definitely a plus side of being a freelancer. But I would just like to say that even as a freelancer, if you have a publication that is uh, publishing your article, you have to follow um, the kind of editorial line of that publication in the sense that you always need to look at who is really funding the publication. And that's the same anywhere. So there is really, uh, I wouldn't say there's no such thing as a journalism or free media or independent media. But when there's a publication, there's somebody funding it behind it and obviously you wouldn't be criticizing the person who is you know you know supporting it and who is um funding it that that would make no sense so even as a freelancer you have to be careful what you can say or cannot say so what i do is 
based on the publication, I'll cover something that has nothing to do with who is, you know, um, behind that newspaper so that I'm independent in what I'm covering in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're all kind of dealing with that now where you, you, you want to just get to the source and the cause, the root cause of a problem, but then uh, you may run into trouble later on. And speaking yeah. of um, censorship and all that stuff, uh, a lot of developments recently. Um, well, first of all, I think the major big one, because we're Europeans, was the EU copyright, the European Union copyright directives as the end of March, which is a big, big deal. It seems like uh, their attempt to try to deal with uh, freedom of speech on the internet. Uh, what was your reaction when uh, this EU copyright directive came out? Well, I think it's very bad for journalists, especially independent journalists. And it was a strange situation where you saw high-tech uh, companies and independent journalists um, kind of um, find common cause in the sense that um, we don't want to be checked on what we're cut co- like it basically stops the free flow of information because one thing that is positive about the internet is that if I find something in another page, like I can source it, I can use that information and put it in my, for example, if I'm a journalist, I'm covering a topic, I find something out that somebody else covered that is related to my topic and I want to put that in my story because it's very important. And um, you can't do that anymore because you have to pay a sort of, there are new copyright laws where it's hard to do that and they might um, stop you from doing that. So it's like there's going to be this filter and it's an it's uh, automated. It's not individual people like making that judgment. So it's very hard to filter that kind of information um, in an automated way because it's very, in some senses, it's subjective. It's um, dependent on the particular context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's very bad for us. I'm hoping that something will change. And also it was made by people who, you know, if you look at the European Commission or the European Parliament, the average age is, first of all, there wasn't unanimous agreement. There was very much divided. And also it's made by people who haven't really grown up with the internet, who don't really know how it works and the benefits of the free flow of information. And they just see things in terms of, oh, this was copied. Oh, this was it. Use the rights of this person. We already have laws protecting people from like we already have intellectual property laws even online but these people apply that to the internet because they don't know how it really works um so yeah i think it's not very good (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i think it falls more into the category of um control than uh, ignorance in some ways and you you are absolutely right that is definitely a factor uh, but we also know that these people aren't really to be trusted you know there's a lot of um, fanatics operating in Europe your Donald Tusks and uh, Jean-Claude Junkers who um, they clearly are lean a certain way ideologically and they they don't yeah. want that uh, freedom of speech and you know expression of opinion and and then we had as well the, the connection with the big tech companies too uh the InfoWars crew, Alex Jones, Paul Joseph Watson, banned from Facebook and all of that. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, what was your reaction to this one? This was just uh, this week, I believe. I think it's shocking. I think it sets a terrible precedent. And I think more needs to be done at this point to stop it. Because what I um, kind of observed is that they do this in a very progressive manner they don't ban people all at once because they want the reaction to be contained so we saw last summer that they banned infowars but they didn't ban other people and then they waited six months to ban this person or that person and then they did this other crackdown the other day so 
I think it's very bad. These are public platforms. They're not published publishing companies. So they have a duty to respect in the case of the United States, because they're mostly American social media companies, the First Amendment. And um, it's crazy what has happened. And even not in the United States, even in Europe, we have free speech laws. So these people should be protected under those laws. And high tech companies have no right to filter based on their individual judgment with no justification, no possibility of appeal. So there's nothing you can do. You might sue them but it's very hard because these are huge, you know, billion dollar companies. What can an individual person, like there's so much an individual person can do. The only thing that can be done is by national governments to make sure that these high tech companies respect, um, you know, respect freedom of speech and also that they're not politically motivated in the way that they filter news and in the way that they um, censor particular people. There was no justification for the censorship as far as I know. I'm pretty sure this was the case. Um, they weren't sent an email. They weren't really told what they did that was wrong. It was just purely politically motivated. And then they tried, so they banned some conservatives and then they banned uh, Louis Farrakhan, who isn't a conservative. <laughs> this is, I think, widely known. And I think they did so so that they wouldn't be accused of banning conservatives because in the, in the United States, um, Congress, they were really much uh, scrutinized for doing, for banning conservatives. So they decided to put Louis Farrakhan in there so that they wouldn't be accused of doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're constantly playing these games and all of those big, um, it's all about like trying to be in control while hiding that, that that's what they want to actually do. And then yeah. when you look at the um, Silicon Valley companies are all uh, Google, Patreon, Facebook, PayPal, um, Snapchat, I think they're all within like a, a 20 mile or 50 mile radius up near uh, San Francisco, whatever, it's uh, it's hilarious. And um, speaking of um, what's going on in Italy then in recent times, a lot of us in Western Europe are talking about it. Um, always happy to see kind of a, a nationalist movement happening. Um, Poland as well is, is uh, very interesting to watch. Um, talking about European Union membership, um, up till this point, do you think it's been a good thing for, for Italy? And I think you, you brought up the, um, the negative economic impact as well. Um, yes, I expected to see more from this government in terms of the promises that they made to stand up to the uh, detrimental policies in terms of our economy to the European Union. I think Ireland has similar issues, but, um, you know, they're doing what they can because they are being constantly threatened and um, in, in economic terms and they really don't have that decision-making power because in the European Union, what many people don't know is that Germany is really dominating the union in terms of policies. So it's like the, it is involved in the political decision-making process because it's so economically powerful. And so, um, for example, in Southern Europe with countries like Greece and Italy, which had different kinds of economies to Germany, when they were, they first um, got into the Euro, um, many, and they had, you know, it was a union, but it wasn't really a union because it was just monetary. There was no fiscal policy that these countries had in common. So, um, for example, in the United States, if you had one state, the federal government deciding to invest in a particular state, and then if that state wasn't able to pay back uh, on their investments with an interest rate, they would uh, impose austerity measures on that state to pay back 
that that debt and with the interest rate and that makes no sense because you're obviously if you're a country and if you're a union you're supposed to help you know those other struggling states or regions um and that's the whole problem with the european union it's that it's a union but it's just a union in some ter- in some cases and not in others and so you know it's like northern italy is economically stronger than southern italy and northern italy pays for a lot in southern italy we don't make investments and then expect a return with an interest rate and then if they're not able to give it back we just like strangle them under austerity that would make no sense because that would be detrimental to us as well because we're part of the same uh country and we're under the same you know government mm-hmm. so the whole problem with the european union is that it was a monetary union without a fiscal union and so it allowed countries like germany which had more liquidity and w- which were more economically powerful to Uh, bully these other countries who are struggling and they made investments and expected returns on those investments, which is really the practice of usury. I mean, you're not supposed to invest in a country in things like, you know, government, like public related things like the education or healthcare, um, and then expect an interest rate like return on those investments that's the practice of usury and actually the according to german government statistics they made billions out of the greek crisis for example which is what a lot of people don't know and the german economy in itself is very much benefiting from a trade surplus with the united states and it's selling of um automobile autos i don't know <laughs> the term automobile, like yeah. yeah yeah automobiles so they're um their economy is really not that strong anyways they're very much benefiting from this um from this surplus trade surplus which uh president trump wants to reverse and change and that's why the european union and the european commission and germany are so worried about this because it would be hugely detrimental to to germany and as a result of that to your, to the european union because right now with all these populist uprisings germany is the only country that is really resisting and should there be an economic crisis there as well it would put the whole union into a crisis because even france which is you know under macron supposedly another european union ally with the uh, yellow vest movement that's really showing the weakness um in in france as well so germany is really the last uh, stronghold for the european union mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what happens when everybody joins together in the group. You know, everybody ends up sinking in the end when you all join hands, and it's not a good system because not everybody's equal. Like you were saying, in different regions, even within Italy, people aren't. Uh, it's not all equal all the way across the board. And if you have this one system in in Brussels that dictates to all, it's just not going to really work, is it? Yes, it does not work because there's not a union in all terms you know like there's still national governments which make fiscal policies that are different from each other so it's only a union in terms of like financial in a financial sense but that's not enough to establish a, a union if anything that's the weakest link um mm. and some people are opposed to the idea of an EU army and a single EU fiscal policy the thing is if they had established the European Union in such a way that it was more democratic and nation separate nation states could re- could make it accountable and sort of relate to it more than it make have worked because the idea of a union in Europe makes sense if you want to compete with countries like 
Russia or China, you know, you can't have individual states compete in that sense. Um, so it would have made sense if, if it would have been done differently. But right now you have this Euroscepticism because of how poorly it was done. But in this Euroscepticism, you have the sense of unity between different uh, nationalist or populist uh, movements in different countries. So there is that unity still. It's not just Euroscepticism, like we hate Europe, we hate the idea of a union in Europe. They just dislike the, how things are being run. Um, well, looking at the, um, when we're focusing on Italy again, um, was it those economic kind of problems that you've brought up before? Was that the major driving force behind the kind of um, rise of nationalism in Italy? Was it more the migrant thing? What were the main reasons why um, why things have kind of changed in Italy recently? I wouldn't say that this government is nationalist because we have a coalition of uh, first of all, I think nationalism means different things to different countries. Um, in the U.S., with President Trump, it's very much been normalized. But in countries like Spain, for example, it's not used. It doesn't have a positive connotation, as far as I know. Um, in Italy, it definitely is, does not have a positive connotation because it's um, associated with fascism and Nazism. So what the term that people use here is sovereigntist, if that makes any sense in, in Italian translation. It's Sovereignismo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it means just being a sovereign nation and making your own decisions for yourself. Um, so we have a sovereignist government because we have a coalition of an anti-immigrant party, which is the League, um, which has the minority in the coalition, and the Five Star Movement, which is really doesn't have a clear definition. They have all kinds of people supporting them, but they're very much liberal in many senses but they're anti-establishment. So what they can all agree on is that things are not working the way they are right now. Um, what brought to this government, I think it's a mix, mixture of two main factors. One is the economic crisis, which is much more reflected in a, in a party like the Five Star Movement, which really wanted to address um, the, you know, the economic inequalities that were arising. And then you have uh, the League, which was triggered by like the rise of the league was triggered by the migrant crisis um and how things were were being very poorly handled with the migrant crisis because we were for the from 2015 onwards because we were just on the shores like italy is a peninsula um we had the one of the highest numbers of migrants i think together with greece than any other country so yes, people began to be frustrated because they were suffering economically and then they saw people from outside uh, getting special treatment and being, you know, even if they weren't taking getting special treatment, there was just no space for them because we already have so much unemployment um, and we have, uh, our jobs are so precarious. Uh, they're very low paid. So if somebody else comes in, if there, is, there are no jobs, what jobs are they going to take? And if the jobs that exist are poorly paid, then it means that the wages or the salary, salaries have to get even lower to be able to include other people in the working sector, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating. Um, I'm sure you've answered this question a lot about the nature of the coalition. You know, you have a more left-wing organization who are traditionally more internationalists and, and, and more, more towards the socialist end of things, maybe Marxist or whatever. And then you have the, the uh, League, which is more uh, like, uh, you know, more about um, 
well nationalism but in, in some ways but but not not in Italy I know but like how, how do you think they're going to reconcile that going forward do you, is there any signs of the of them running into disagreements within that coalition uh, so far um so far the disagreements even though they've been drummed up by the media and the establishment wants to see the coalition collapse because you have two anti-establishment forces from both sides coming together um, for now, there have not been major disagreements. There have not been talks of breaking up the government or calling for new elections. Um, one thing I would say about the Five Star Movement is that it's not really socialist. It's not Marxist. It's just anti-establishment. They have all kinds of views on very different issues. They have representatives with opposing views on issues like migration, for example, and the leader of the Five Star Movement, Luigi Di Maio, has repeatedly said that the movement is neither left-wing nor right-wing. Um, so I realize that they're a very particular case. Um, as for the league, it used to be a regionalist separatist movement, and then it changed under the leadership of Matteo Salvini, and it became more nationalist. Um, but again, I don't think nationalist nationalism is really the right word because they do believe in, for example, fiscal autonomy for different regions. So they still support the idea that Northern Italy shouldn't be paying, going back to our previous conversation, shouldn't be paying um, so much for the South and investments that are not really working for the South. Um, so they still, um, they still abide to that, but they're no longer separatists. They no, no longer believe that, you know, Northern Italy should be a separate state or country. Yeah, very interesting case. Well, I think whatever works, whatever whatever is effective to improve the lives of people in Italy, that's the important thing. And it doesn't really matter too much about the ideologies involved as long as they can make something work, which is which is great. And, um, you know, you brought up the migrant issue, of course. That's the elephant in the room when we're talking about Europe. Um, you know, you're in a key location in Italy there. You know, you're not far from North Africa and you've got obviously um, uh, Sardinia and um Sicily as well, the islands before the mainland. Um, you know, from what you've seen, I know you're based in Libya too. From what you what you've seen, um, like what what kind of migrants are we talking about? Where are they coming from, and and what do you know about them? So I'm not based in Libya. I've actually never been to Libya, but I was staying in Tunisia. Um, I work on Libya a lot, but it's very hard to get a visa to enter the country. Um, I'm trying to do that, but uh, even from Tunisia and setting the issue from there, you have uh, migrants coming from Tunisia too. And um, the information that I was able to gather, even very easily from um, organizations like the UNHCR, so United Nations um, organizations, like even the International Organization for Migration, uh, that deal specifically with migration, you see, uh, just if you look at their own data, you have the answers. Um, you see that the vast majority are uh, sub-Saharan African migrants. They're not from North Africa or the Middle East. And they're largely economic migrants. Um, what I would also say is that recently we had a new um, kind of movement. You know, the media was trying to push the idea that Italy should open its ports again because it had closed its ports under Matteo Salvini, the new, you know, they call him anti-immigrant leader. But they had closed the port, so no more migrants were entering the country. And now we see this new um, kind of petition in a way to open the ports again because there's another conflict ensuing in Libya. 
But if you look at the recent, the most recent migrant wave, I think 140 migrants were able to reach Italy through the UN um, and through Libya, but through the UN as an organization that facilitated this you see that there are no Libyans, actually. So the fact that they're using the civil war in Libya, which seems to be um, ensuing to reopen it, the ports, is actually, um, it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense because the, vast ma the majority, actually, of the migrants, if not the entirety of the, mi the migrants, are uh, not Libyan. So Libyans want to stay in their country. This is what many people don't understand with this new... Uh, kind of propaganda campaign for open borders, for, you know, accepting refugees and accepting migrants is that actually people don't like to move. You know, they like to stay in their own country if they could of origin and lead a good life. Um, so really the uh, focus and the objective isn't to open our ports to let these people in and then have so many problems for both sides. The solution would be to make sure that these people don't feel the need to leave in the first place. Um, but that's not where the debate is focused. And, you know, in the case of Libya, actually people are not trying to leave, even though there's, there are these conflicts right now. Um, and if they were trying to leave, then you have to have um, a vetting system where you are sure that the people who are escaping war are actually the ones leaving, not, um, you know, not m economic migrants who do not have priority over them. Mm -hmm. um, but that it, this is not being done. You know, there's this obsession with, oh, we should accept everyone or these, these poor people. But it makes no sense if you actually examine the issue closely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more, there's definitely forces involved here who are trying to push this on, on European countries and try to get as many migrants as they can into Europe. And they're just trying to find different ways of doing it. And um, I remember, I think it was 2011, um, Berlusconi met with uh, Colonel Gaddafi, or maybe it was a bit before that, but before Gaddafi died anyway. And I think Gaddafi was actually in Rome when he said that famous line about, you know, if you take out me, if you try to mess with Libya, take over Libya, then the European continent will turn black. <laughs> and he, he meant that, yeah, you know, he once that. once he lost control of, of Tripoli, then things would change. And I believe that um, they, Italy actually had a deal with um, Libya where they, they actually used to police the, the Mediterranean for migrants, didn't they, with the Italian Navy, I think? Um, yes, they used to have a, you mean under Gaddafi? Yeah, yeah, around that time, yeah. Yeah. So Gaddafi was able to, uh, so yeah, they reached a deal with uh, Silvio Berlusconi's government at the time to make sure that no uh, migrants were passing. And in return, um, Italy was was investing a lot in Libya, which it, it is still doing. Um, but yes, Gaddafi said that famous line, which if anyone said nowadays would be deemed extremely racist and unacceptable. But he said that, and he also said another line that there would, that, um, there would be no war for Islam to triumph in Europe because uh, they there would they wouldn't have to pick a gun or a sword because they just they would be out the Europeans would be outnumbered so it wouldn't even be a fight in that sense. Um, that also, if you quote that, it, it's seen as extremely you know racist or Islamophobic. One thing I would say about Gaddafi is that even his own people hate him. So there, when there was the revolution at the time, actually like Libyans did legitimately um, oppose him. And I know there's a lot of controversy about the NATO intervention, which I don't personally agree with, even though it's not my job to make these judgments really as a journalist. But 
um, as far as I can tell with all the Libyans that I spoke to in these years, even if I haven't been there directly, I speak with Libyans inside the country who are living there. And they, there's not one single Libyan who said they are nostalgic of Gaddafi. I mean, he had ruled for so many years. The government was so corrupt under him. Uh, what the intervention did that was wrong is that they destroyed the whole state apparatus. So even if you change the leader, because it was his time to go, you know, you can't just rule forever. Mm-hmm. But um, even if you change the leader, you try and keep that system, which maintains the stability in the country, but they destroyed the entire system. So it was just anarchy, really. It was just tribal and militia rule. Mm. So, yes, just wanted to, to say that. No, that's cool. No, <laughs> I, like, you know, I like I like hearing that. No, it's good to um, good to lay it all out because reality isn't black and white. It's, it's complex and it's nuanced and it's interesting. He... Um, uh, yeah, a lot of people have their opinions on it, and his his prediction about Europe was correct that things would change, and that once um, you know Tripoli is an important uh, port, and that it would you know the, the migrants would cause a problem for Europe. He was also correct about Islam as well, um, but then again, his people didn't like him, so uh, you know uh, that was the end of that. Um, you know, when it comes to the media in Italy, what what's their attitude? Are they saying the same as what? the Western European countries uh, mainstream media are saying these are all uh, refugees from war-torn areas this is a humanitarian issue etc etc yes I mean I would say that the Western media the establishment media is pretty much the same everywhere even though we are living under uh, anti-establishment populist governments um, we still have an establishment media which is very much opposed to this government and yes they I mean if I read their articles, it's, they don't use facts. It's really bad journalism, you know. There's a lot of talk about fake news and banning people like Alex Jones, but I see really poor journalism in the establishment media. They don't use the UN statistics. Um, they don't use government statistics. It's just like a t- kind of a pledge. It's activism. It's commentary. It's not journalism, um, and it's really misleading, and it makes no sense if you examine it closely. But if for someone who doesn't like have this job, who isn't really doesn't have the time to look into these things, you know, they take things at face value, and so you really need to hold these people to account when they publish false information or when they make they don't make good journalism, you know. But there's not a system to do that, so mm-hmm. yeah, they're not accountable. And unfortunately, no. people listen to them. And, and that's, I think, where, you know, the, the internet media, the alternative online media is making good ground and it's it's getting more powerful, you could say. But unfortunately, a lot of people still reach for the mainstream media. And if that information isn't good enough, they're, they're just not going to get a clear picture of, of what's going on, right? Yes. I mean, when I went to the U.S., I also saw that everywhere I was shocked. There was CNN in the airports and, um, you know, in just restaurants um it was you know it was everywhere that's what people see and that's how they're influenced but i would say obviously since most people are now voting differently they don't trust the media anymore because they see one thing in television and one thing in the newspapers and then they see another thing in their actual lives Mm -hmm. um so there's a huge disconnect there yeah 
Um, when, when you're communicating with people in Italy or, or anywhere, I suppose, and you're trying to, you know, convince them or explain uh, to them that it's not what the media is telling them, it's not a humanitarian crisis the way they see it. Many of the migrants, most of them are economic migrants. Like, how do you explain that to them? Do you bring in things like, say, people smuggling and things like that to, to try to convince them or...? Yes, I actually only have these conversations with very wealthy intellectual elites who think differently. If I talk to regular people, they will agree with me and they will find that what I say is true. Um, going back to what I was saying before, it's the people, the elites who watch, who take things as face value and who don't see a disconnect in their lives because they have good lives, you know, so they don't see a problem there. It doesn't affect them personally. So they you know, to feel better about themselves. They um, think that being pro-immigration and being um, in favor of these cause, being anti-racist, whatever that means, that they're doing the right thing because that's what they're told by the media and they don't see a disconnect in their lives. Um, and when I have these conversations with them and I bring out the actual facts, um, they are just in denial. It's very hard to convince them because they don't see that disconnect in their lives. And I only was able to saw it because I traveled to those countries and I worked with particular people and I reported on it. So I was able to see um, the falsehoods and how misleading the media was in reporting this information. But when you speak to these people, they just deny it and they don't want to change their minds because that's how they feel better about themselves, you know? Yeah, I think we that's a problem that's everywhere. You have um, the more elitist types from well-to-do backgrounds. They gen generally have easier lives and they hang around with other elites who have these, you know, globalist pan-European ideas that every everything's going to be lovely and we're all going to hold hands and be friends. But but uh, the reality on the ground um, for everyday people is, is different. And um, I remember that story. Um, every country has stories like this. But in Italy, there was that dramatic event of the guy, uh, Senegalese man, I think, who tried to set fire to the, to the school bus. I mean, what was your reaction to this one? And has there been many other instances like this? Or was that just a, a rarity kind of? We have individual instances like this, but my initial reaction was um, just very upset by how the fact that, that the story wasn't being reported on. And it had happened a week after the Christchurch attack and people were still talking about the Christchurch attack in New Zealand um, where Muslims were the victims. But nobody was talking about this where a school bus of 50 children could have been set on fire and these children could have been burnt alive. And it was just uh, stopped by the police it could have happened you know it was just by sheer luck in a way stopped by the police and because one of the uh, some of the children were able to call the police from the bus so i was really upset by how it wasn't being covered and how there was no outrage over this on social media except from really kind of independent journalists and alternative um media and it really shouldn't be a partisan issue this stories should be covered. It's uh, very concerning. And, you know, it's very sad that this is the state of journalism, that people feel the need to cover one particular story or another because it suits their agenda or their ideological belief. That's not how journalism should work. Mm -hmm. 
you're supposed to just tell the truth and be impartial and just report the facts and that that would be yeah. ideal. Um, as well, a lot of countries, in, as we just for our last item here, um, many of the Western countries are dealing with um, Islam as well, which is part of the migration problem because um, Islam is quite strong in Africa and obviously in the Middle East. Uh, many of the migrants are Muslim. Are you seeing any problems with Islam in Italy so far? And I mean, was there is there a big Islamic community in Italy to begin with, if you know what I mean? I would say that the problems... There are not really that many problems in Italy with Islam. It may have to do with the fact that Italy doesn't have a colonial past like France and the United Kingdom. So there isn't, except from, from Libya, but there isn't that kind of resentment um, that you have in countries like the UK and France where you hear a lot of talk about, you know, white privilege or, you know, all everything that all the wrongs of colonialism, for example, when the Notre Dame um, cathedral was on fire people are saying you know there were some really bad tweets where people were saying oh this is like for colonizing africa and uh, we don't have that in italy so there's not as much resentment and the muslim community i think gets along okay there are obviously some tensions but overall we don't have as much as a problem that's not our priority um and Yes, I think it's even in the U.S., I don't think it's that much of a threat. I'm not sure in Ireland what the situation is with Islam. Yeah, things, is there things, a problem? Well, yeah, things are things are different, I suppose, for each country. And because Ireland, the population is so small here that any changes are more kind of noticeable. And um, we are going from a country that used to be, well, like Italy, you know, predominantly Catholic. Well, we have the Protestant thing as well, but predominantly yeah. Catholic. And then the the... Now people are becoming less Christian in Ireland generally nowadays. You know, it's generally more the older yeah. generations. And now the, because the migrant wave are predominantly Muslim. So we've gone from being Roman Catholic Christian to being atheist a little bit and then into yeah. Islam. That's how things are going here. But you know, on yeah, that- I think we see a similar process here taking place, but it's not a direct conflict. There are not as much tensions. There have been no terrorist attacks until now, um, very few religiously motivated attacks. Okay, that's good. That's good. Well, yeah, I hope um, things continue to get better in Italy and I hope uh, the government manages to improve things. That's what governments are supposed to do is to improve the lives of their own citizens. But um, anyway, Alessandra Bocchi, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching Resolving Reality. That was my conversation with Italian freelance journalist Alessandra Bocchi. Alessandra's website is alessandrabocchi.it. Plus you can follow her on Twitter at Alessa Bocchi and the links for those are down below in the description. Make sure you hit those like and subscribe buttons and also check out the Resolving Reality Radio podcast episodes as well. For all of our profiles and platforms, visit our website resolvingreality.com. So once again, thanks for watching. Until next time and enjoy Resolving Reality.